you will notice on the back there, we're going to be talking about a book, which I'll talk about in just a minute. And it all has to do with this book, uh, Return of the God Hypothesis. But if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 19, because this is kind of one of the passages that we are referring to. There are many others I'll refer to, but I just thought at least to kind of set the tone, we'll look at Psalm 19. And verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. And so what I want to do today is actually talk about a very significant book, which is entitled The Return of the God Hypothesis. And I do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it is going to be a very powerful argument for many of you as you maybe talk to your friends, neighbors, co-workers, maybe family members. Why do you believe in God? Science has eliminated the idea that there's a God and actually it is just the opposite. So first of all, I wanted to do that. Number two, if you noticed on the screen, we want to invite you if you'd like to come to an event that Probe Ministries, my organization, is doing at the Hope Center, which is September 23rd. When this book came out, we said, this is a great book. This is really uh, going and already is changing the whole debate about God and science. The trouble is, it is really hard to understand. <laughs> and um, I remember a while back, uh, the, the author is Dr. Stephen Meyer. I've known him since his wife taught my daughter at Schofield and since he was here working in the oil industry and then went on and got his Ph.D. at Cambridge. But it's almost impenetrable as a book. And so we decided to have Dr. Ray Bolin on our staff actually unpack that and communicate it in a more understandable way. So you are invited, if you'd like to come, 7 o'clock on the 23rd at the Hope Center. We can give you a formal invitation, but I just wanted to let you know that that's one of the reasons I'm doing it. And some of you might say, well, I'm going to hear you today, so I don't need it again. Uh, but I think some of you that are certainly have been maybe wanting to know, uh, what's the best scientific evidence that we are now having people argue for the existence of God? We're going to make that available to you. What I'm going to do today, though, is going to be uh, perhaps what you might call the Cliff's Note version. Okay, how many of you remember the Cliff Notes? Okay, all right. Uh, and I suspect every hand that went up probably used it when you had to read Macbeth or... Uh, <laughs> Christy said, yeah, I only got through high school uh, knowing about the Cliff Notes. So there we go. So this is going to be more the Cliff's Notes version in which we're going to try to not get too scientific, but at the same time give you a sense of why we think this book is so significant and why we're scheduling the time to have Dr. Ray Boland, who, by the way, is a fellow of the Discovery Institute, and Stephen Meyer works at the Discovery Institute, to come and actually try to put it a little bit lower. You know, all of us appreciate when the cookies are at a little bit lower shelf there, aren't you? So those are what we're kind of doing today. I got everybody smiling about Cliff's Notes, and everybody's starting to say, I remember those Cliff Notes only so well. By the way, for those younger people, you don't know what those are, because now you have things like Wikipedia and Google 
and all that. But back then, we had nothing of the sort, you know. And if you were trying to make sense of uh, Shakespeare or Steinbeck, I mean, it was impossible. So a lot of us used those books. Everybody having a good time? Okay, let's, if we can, talk about the rise and fall of theistic science. As you see in your handout, that's one of the significant chapters and sections in the book. So I'm going to go through about four chapters very quickly. But the first is, is that I'm going to make the case, I think you can very clearly make the case, and people that would not necessarily agree with us theologically have also made the case, that a Christian view was very important in the development of modern science. The Greek view was that the universe was self-existent, so they didn't really believe that it had a beginning or anything of that nature. But the Judeo-Christian view said, no, we believe that God created. We find that in Genesis 1. And so if indeed we believe in creation, one of the founders of modern science, Robert Boyle, uh, you talked about this idea of the contingency of nature, which is a long word, and it, there's a whole chapter dealing with that. But basically, did, if God created, then we can actually kind of figure out what God did, because after all, we have a mind to do so. Interestingly enough, it also, another key word was the intelligibility of nature. Uh, Johannes Kepler one time said that when I study mathematics, I see the mind of God. Now, when you were in a geometry class or an algebra class, you probably weren't thinking that you were reading the mind of God, right? Uh, but nevertheless, what he was saying is, is that uh, we have a mind, and if God had a mind, it seems to us that people with a mind could understand the structure of the universe. Uh, the scientific method, for example, didn't arise in cultures like Hinduism and Buddhism because the belief was is the world was an illusion. And so really it was the idea of creation and liberating it a little bit from some of the ideas that even were accepted during the Middle Ages of the Greek idea that eventually led to this incredible explosion of what today we call the scientific method. Um, there are chapters that go into that in more detail, but we're not going to go into that. And the reason they argued that is because they said that just as we have a Bible, which is God's word, we also have nature, which is all from God as well. And so in Psalm 19, this idea is there. In Romans 1 and others. In other words, when I see the creation, uh, whether the psalmist or the Apostle Paul says, when we look at creation, it looks like design. And design implies a designer. And so we would think that would be the case. And so as a result, they started talking about the laws of nature. That uh, these aren't just all random actions, that there were actually physical laws we can determine. Again, all of you are going, duh, that's pretty obvious. But for um, almost a millennium, those ideas weren't really held to. But once you began to believe that there's a creator God. I can understand the creation because it's intelligent and because I have intelligence and there were laws. Now they began to develop everything. One professor uh, at Oxford, professor historian of science, again, not a person that would necessarily be a Christian, said that for Isaac Newton, for Robert Boyle, Rene Descartes, there were laws of nature only because there had been what? A divine legislator. This led, of course, to the idea of design. Design implied a designer and those kinds of things. And so this was what was developing up until about the Enlightenment. And so most of the founders of science were for sure theists. Most of them were Christians. 
Okay, how many of you have been to the ICR Discovery Center? Have you been there? Okay, when you've been there and you walk into that first room, what you think are paintings start talking to you, right? And these are all the scientists. And as you listen to them, they're all pretty much speaking from a Christian point of view. So that gives you an idea of what was existing until we move into the Enlightenment. Now that's the idea of the rejection of the God hypothesis. You had David Hume, for example, arguing against the idea of miracles. You have Comp uh, actually arguing for what we today call logical positivism, but saying that there's a dichotomy between science and religion. You know, yeah, you may believe uh, the Bible, but that's just faith stuff. We believe in science. And to this day, you have young people that say, well, either I have to believe the Bible or I have to believe in science, but I can't believe the two. You know, and so that's where that idea comes from. Immanuel Kant rejected the idea of the cosmological argument. I'm going to give you that one in just a minute. And then Pierre Laplace, when he's presenting this whole idea of celestial mechanics to, at that time, Napoleon, Napoleon at the end says, I see nowhere in your presentation where you talk about the idea of God as creator. And he says, I have no need of that hypothesis. I can explain everything in the world without God. And if that's not bad enough, then came Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud. And when I had Stephen Meyer on the program, he made the argument this way. This is how they established, and we have a whole chapter in the book, on comprehensive materialism. Darwin, from biology, told us where we came from. Marx, with secular eschatology, told us where we're going. And Freud, with psychology, told us what to do with the human condition. And as he said on my radio program, by the end of the 19th century, you have this materialistic worldview that answered all the basic questions that the Judeo-Christian religion had always answered. And so, as we come into the 20th century, they've rejected the idea of the God hypothesis. If you'd like to know a little bit more, I always like to recommend some books. And first of all, Henry Morris wrote a book years ago called Men of Science and Men of God. It's now available in the Henry Morris Signature Collection, if I can get my uh, screen there. And so that is one that I would highly recommend telling you the story of some of those great scientists. Or else go to the ICR Discovery Center and just stand there for more than five minutes <laughs> and listen to each one. You know, sometimes people never get any further in there because they want to hear every one of the presentations. Uh, Charles Saxon used to be on probe staff and Nancy Piercy that are actually at the Houston Baptist University wrote a very good book, The Soul of Science. Which, interesting enough, Dr. Ray Boland, when he was with Stephen Meyer just a few weeks ago, said, Stephen, you never quoted from that book. And Stephen goes, yeah, I didn't. And, of course, Charles Saxon was one of his mentors, and he felt bad about that. So I think the next diversion is going to have that book in there. And um, he may not mention that third book because I wrote it. But nevertheless, it's called Origin Science, in which Dr. Norm Geisler and I took just one part of that and pointed out that scientists at the time recognized that really origin science is different than operation science. Daily operation science says I can see things, I can measure things, so it has observation and repeatability. Uh, that's the mistake of Pierre Laprice. Yes, because I can see celestial mechanics, I can see how the solar system goes and everything, so I don't need God. No, it doesn't tell you anything about where it came from, because origin science is different. Do you have observation of what happened in the past? No. Do you have reputability? No. So it's more like forensic science. It's more like um, Sherlock Holmes, or maybe somebody would like to watch the CSI programs, and so that's what the argument of that book is. So let's, if we can now, talk about then the return of the God hypothesis. And since I want to make sure it's not too scientific, let me use some illustrations. 
Christian and atheists are walking down the park here, and all of a sudden they find a ball. And the Christian picks it up and said, hmm, I wonder where the ball came from. The atheist said, well, the ball obviously came from somewhere. The Christian says, so the ball has a cause. The atheist said, of course the ball has a cause. The Christian says, what if that ball is 16 feet in diameter? Would that ball have a cause? The atheist said, well, of course that ball would have a cause. Small balls would have a cause. A larger ball would have a cause. What if that uh, ball is 16 miles in diameter? Would that ball have a cause? Yes. A small ball would have a cause. A larger ball would have a cause. An even larger ball would have a cause. What if that ball is the universe? Would that ball have a cause? The atheist pauses. No, actually not. A small ball would have a cause. A larger ball would have a cause. But the biggest ball of all, it just happened by chance. Who's more scientific at that point? Think about that for just a minute. This is a very simple way of talking about what we're going to get into, the cosmological argument. It's a big word we use in seminary, but it's the idea of cause and effect. And if you look at cause and effect, we see that everywhere. And the biggest cause of all has to be giving us the biggest effect of all, and that would be the universe. And so that is the argument of a cosmological argument. Well, the Christian atheist walking a little bit further, and they find a watch. And the Christian says, I've got another question. The atheist said, yeah, does it have a cause? No, no, different question this time, different question this time. You know, as we look at this watch, it seems to have a tremendous amount of design in it. Well, that's true. But um, isn't it at least theoretically possible that what looks like design happened by chance? I mean, after all, every element in this watch can be found somewhere on this planet. Isn't it possible that a tornado came through here and just came and brought all the materials together and created this watch? And the atheist says, that's impossible because the level of design in the watch is too intricate to explain by what? Chance. That's what we call the teleological argument, and that's the um, design argument. So that gives you an idea of why now what uh, Stephen Meyer is saying is, is that what people in the end of the 19th century, the start of the 20th century, were convinced that they could completely have eliminated the God hypothesis, now modern science is bringing a return back to it. Okay, let's look at that. The first issue is light from distant stars. The argument that used to be the case was that the universe existed forever. Aristotle argued for the eternality of the universe. And if the universe has always been here, well, we don't have to talk about where it came from because it's always been here. But Jewish and Christian philosophers were arguing that creation demands a creation what? Ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God. So, astronomers began, not necessarily coming from a Christian point of view, but they're looking at light and they're saying, you know, this, if, if, this, if the universe is eternal, some of the things that we see about light coming from even the stars in our galaxy, which would be the Milky Way galaxy, once they develop telescopes, these stars in other galaxies, that doesn't fit the idea of an eternal universe, well, then you go to Edward Hubble at the time, actually having one of the most powerful telescopes, a little more powerful than the one Parker has, but nevertheless, began to make arguments that what before they thought were gases was actually the Andromeda galaxy. And this galaxy is much bigger than our galaxy, and it's much further away, and so... All of a sudden, they started saying, this doesn't fit. Then they began to measure the light coming from these stars, and they were shifted to the red spectrum. 
Now, again, I won't get into the science there, but it's what's called a Doppler effect. As a car comes to you, you, the pitch is right. And as things are going away from you, it shifts in terms of sound. Well, this seemed to suggest that the universe was wildly expanding. All these galaxies were expanding from each other. And so other scientists then measured background radiation. And this finally led to the scientists concluding that the universe had what? A beginning. Now, they believe that it's the Big Bang billions of years ago. I got a different idea. God said Big Bang and it came into being. But nevertheless, the bottom line is, is that whether you look at it from a atheistic evolutionary point of view or a Christian point of view, you conclude that this says we have a beginning. Well, this creates a little bit of ulcer for your atheist friends. And Robert Jastrow, who is an individual that worked at the Goddard Space Institute there up uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, Maryland, wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And in the last chapter before the epilogue, he put it this way. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And so, again, this is the first very interesting idea of the universe, that it had a beginning. That's the cosmological argument. Let's look at a different one. Sir Fred Hoyle, who was the one that originally proposed the idea of a steady-state eternal universe began to ask questions as, how is carbon formed, especially inside the stars? And as he began to look at that, he realized that every one of the parameters, physical parameters, had to be just right. And came up with the idea of Goldilocks. Remember Goldilocks and the Three Bears? One bowl of porridge was too hot, one was too cold, and one was just right. One bed was too hard, one was too soft, one was just right. And they began to say, wait a minute. Physicists began to find, and now the number is over 300 different parameters, just physical parameters alone, that have to be what? Just right in order to have anything like life at all. Sir John Hulkinghorn, he talks about, was one of the uh, mentors for um, Stephen Meyer. Um, Ask his students to even consider what it would be like if you had what he might call a universe-creating machine responsible for the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, Steve Meyer then took it one step further when he was at Cambridge and began to ask his students what they would think if actually just one click to the left, one click to the right, or moving a fader up or down just a little bit, it would result in catastrophic uh, uh, results. And so this is one of the diagrams in the book. The electromagnetic force constant, the cosmological constant, the strong and nuclear forces, the mass of the up quark, the mass of the down quark, the electron mass, the entropy of the universe, the ratio of the strong uh, force compared to the electromagnetic force, the gravitational force, the mass of neutrinos, and the list goes on and on and on. You don't need to know all the science behind it. All you need to do is to figure out very quickly that um, you are looking at something that is incredibly fine-tuned. To give you some examples, um, the scientists trying to make sense of this, first of all said, well, what's called the weak anthropic principle, said, well, we shouldn't be surprised that we actually see a universe that is suited for life because, after all, we're here in the first place. So only we would be able to see a universe that is finely tuned. 
Well, yeah, that's sort of saying why we're here, but it wouldn't say why all those parameters are finely tuned. So others have said, well, maybe the universe depends on the existence of an observer. And that's led a lot of people to say, huh, it's almost as if the universe knew we were coming, as one astronomer said, because everything is fine-tuned. Or even Sir Fred Hoyle, who I just mentioned a minute ago, said, it's almost like a super intellect has been monkeying in some way or the other with the universe. Which, again, is pretty interesting things to be said by secular scientists who up until fairly recently rejected the idea of the God hypothesis. So you can use some different examples. One that I've always loved to use is that if you are even inf- unfamiliar, maybe you're from Europe and you are just um, going along in a trail in the Black Hills and you see this, you don't look at this, even if you don't know who Gutzon Borglum is, who c- actually carved it, you don't look at this and say, my, look at the erosion pattern there that gave us all of those faces. You just don't see anybody saying that. You may not know who the um, creator is, but you know there was a creator. You may not know what the intellect was, but you know that this is information. Now, Stephen Meyer, since he lives in Seattle, which is where the Discovery Institute, uses a different illustration. That is, apparently, if you come into Victoria, British Columbia, you see this welcome to Victoria. And he says, you know, you could argue that uh, birds flying over drop seeds and they just all configured themselves in this little particular pattern of welcome to Victoria. But I don't think anybody seriously believes that. And it helps you understand why if you start looking at the origin of the universe and the fine tuning of the universe, you start having some real fundamental questions about all of that. One of the other things that uh, Stephen Meyer uses is a, um, uh, if you will, a uh, master lock. And um, he started class one day by arguing that chance alone could not give us the fine tuning of the universe. So then he would pass around a a particular uh, lock like this and have them guess the combination. And he'd even give them a hint. That is, you could you turn first to the right, then to the left, then to the right. And so he'd pass it around, and then he'd be lecturing. And all of a sudden, one of the students go, I opened it! And he would feign surprise and go, oh, I can't believe that. And everybody would laugh. And then after about a minute or two, everybody would start saying, wait a minute. Now, I thought about this today, but unfortunately, um, Luke walked in, uh, Nick walked in a little bit too late. Because I was going to pass this around here and give him the combination. And uh, then, uh, you know, have everybody try to open it and then let... Uh, Nick opened it up and go, I opened it up! And then we'd have some fun about saying, you know, if the school thing doesn't work out, being a lock picker might work out better for him, you know. Uh, so that was kind of my idea. But immediately the students said, wait a minute. How is it that one of these students got that right? Now, again, you probably have tried to forget probability, but there are 40 numbers on these, okay? So your chance of getting the first one right, one out of 40. Second, one out of 40. Third one, one out of 40. 40 times 40 times 40. One chance in 64,000, okay? So you can pass that around in any classroom, and every once in a while, over a 10-year period, maybe somebody would get it by chance. But when they get it, you know that somebody actually had the combination. You see the point? And yet again, back to my favorite argument, picking a lock is child's play compared to what we now know as we look at 
biology. One last one. And that is, ever since Darwin, evolutionists have assumed, and one of the leading evolutionists in Chicago said that we can now explain all of life that looks like it's designed, but really we can explain design without a designer. And so that's kind of the argument that's been made. And uh, there are new atheists that have said that. But the discovery by James Watson and Francis Crick of the structure of DNA began to unravel, he says, the materialist idea and understanding of life. The chemical subunits are like letters. And so we recognize that those letters have to be put in a meaningful word way to make a word or a sentence. Or they're like the subunits of software. And so he begins to tell the story of one individual that was trying to argue, Dean Kenyon, uh, in his book, Biochemical Predestination, which is one of the books I had to read when I was in graduate school at Yale, um, arguing that the molecules self-organized themselves into that. But by the time Dean Kenyon was here in Dallas giving a lecture that he talks about, he had pretty much given up on the idea because he worked, realized that didn't work. He also talks about the book Mystery of Life's Origin, published by one of our probe staff members, uh, which really began to raise some questions. Then mathematicians started doing some numbers and started to say, this is just completely beyond anything we would have imagined. And then even in his previous book, Stephen Meyer calculates the probability of just getting one functional protein by chance. And the numbers are just huge. As a matter of fact, he points out the fact that Bill Gates, everybody knows who Bill Gates is, and since he's in Seattle, Bill Gates is in Seattle, Bill Gates has said that when we look at the DNA code, it is more complex than the most complex software code we have created at Microsoft. Which maybe says something about Microsoft. But anyway, um, you know, we'll leave it at that. But then he comes back to this idea of inference. And that inference sometimes helps you begin to come to those conclusions. So real quickly, just before we do that, if you say to yourself, well, I might like to look a little bit more at that. There's a very good book that deals with this whole idea of the fact that the universe came into being by chance and about whether or not it's fine-tuned, and that's in this book called The Privileged Planet. And uh, Jay Richards, who's also at the um, Discovery Institute, and Guillermo Gonzalez, who was at Iowa State and is now at uh, another university, wrote that book. Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer gets into the whole issue of biology. So we see intelligent design in astronomy. We see intelligent design in biology. And my book, which we have some copies up here, uh, Biblical Point of View on Intelligent Design, I take you through intelligent design in biology, intelligent design in astronomy, intelligent design in geology, which we won't get to today. And what we want to now do is say, well, in light of some of the things we know, can we make some possible inferences? And again, I'm covering a fair number of chapters, so it's going to go pretty quickly. But the first is to recognize that we have different worldviews. What are those? Well, we have a theistic worldview that God created, and God is still involved in one way or another in his creation. We have a view down there called deism that says God created it, kind of started the clock and walked away. We have another view called materialism. There is no God. It all created itself. We have an uncaused cause that gave us the universe. And then finally, pantheism, that God is in the universe. And he uses that to begin to say, okay, when we look at these three very important questions, what are the most logical answers? And we can, first of all, recognize that we, when we ask three questions, we get four worldviews. Does God exist? 
If the answer is no, well, that's naturalism, atheism, materialism. If we say yes, then we ask the next question, is God personal or impersonal? If we say impersonal, well, that'd be pantheism, that'd be Hinduism or Buddhism. If we say God is personal, does God act only at the start of the universe or throughout the universe? If only at the start, that would be deism. Or if God's still involved, then that's theism. And using that very quickly, he can begin to take you through each one of these chapters. And I'm just going to give you the summary, because you just want the bottom line anyway, because this is the Cliff's Notes, right? Um, but if you begin to say, okay, when we see the Big Bang, can you explain the Big Bang within a materialistic point of view? No. Because you say, what brought about the universe before? In just a minute, I'll talk about the, uh, the grasping at straws now. Some people say, well, maybe there are multiple universes out there. And, of course, he answers that question. But simply, can you explain the universe by materialism? Because back to our view of cause and effect, the cause has to be larger than the effect. Scientists tell us that the Big Bang created both space and time. Now, you get into quantum physics to even figure that out. That would suggest that whatever the cause of the universe has to be bigger than the universe. It has to be more powerful than the universe. So that'd be omnipotent, right? It would have to be outside of space. So it'd have to be like omnipresent. And it would have to be outside of time. So it would have to be eternal. Can you think of any possible candidates that are omnipotent? omniscient probably, because you have to have intelligence there as well, omnipresent and eternal. Um, I, I only come up with one. You see the problem with that. Pantheism, that the universe created itself, well, no, that doesn't work either, because you have God as part of the universe, but there's a time when the universe came into being, and so you can begin to eliminate some very quickly when you look at just the beginning of the universe. Okay, let's look at the design of the universe. Well, you can eliminate some of those as well because these design, you know, maybe you could say that there was a God that started it all and then just walked away from it. He gives you answers for that because I think you can X that one out as well because of other things that needed to be inputted into the universe. Of course, we also recognize the scriptures that says that really the universe is held together by what? God. And God is involved. So again, you can begin to eliminate the issue of design. And then finally, when we look at the design of life, we see so much functional biological information. Again, you can eliminate materialism and pantheism. But you'll see one other one that was added there, and it's panspermia. What in the world is that? Well, Dr. Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA, Finally, when he looked at all these origin of life studies and everything, said the amount of specificity, intelligent specificity in the DNA cannot be explained by the natural phenomenon here in the, in the world. We cannot come up with chemical and physical laws that can explain how you have something as intricate as DNA. So it must have been brought here by ancient astronauts. <laughs> That's his argument, really. Directed panspermia, the seeds of life. Either it was brought here intentionally, and you have some movies now out with that kind of idea that intentionally the seeds of life were planted here, or it was brought here accidentally on the 
feet of the booths of some ancient astronaut. Which, of course, just simply moves the question of origin of life to some other galaxy. And so far, we haven't run into any of those intelligent life. But nevertheless, you can see, again, kind of almost the grasping of straws to try to find something. Because we know it's not God. It certainly cannot be God. So it must be the ancient astronauts. And that's the kind of logic and conversations that are taking place right now when you talk about what's called chemical evolution or the origin of life discussions. Now, I might just mention that some of you that are really smart might be saying, wait a minute, there's a couple other questions that I hear some of my friends asking. And so he devotes 150 pages to a section called Conjectures and Refutations. It's the so-called information shell game, how people say, well, maybe I can explain some of this information, information without believing in an intelligent designer. Or maybe there's more than one God. <laughs> Maybe there's more than one universe, and we did talk about this a little bit on the radio. You can read that if you'd like, because, again, this idea of multi-universes, we have no observational evidence of any of that. But when you're trying to say, well, maybe there are other universes. Right now, there's another universe where the Kirby Anderson, who maybe is only four feet three, uh, lecturing to a few people right now simultaneously in one of those universes. And there's somebody else at nine feet five uh, that looks different. And, he, and it's all happening in all these multi-universes. And if you believe that, I think it takes less faith to believe in the Bible, right? And then he talks about Stephen Hawking trying to come up with quantum cosmology and a number of other things and collapsing waves and Boltzmann brains. Don't you love that somebody's out there answering questions that most of us can't even understand the question, and he's already given very reasonable Christian answers to that. But the point I'm making is, is nothing else. This is, a, we think, a very significant book. It is beginning to really challenge the thinking. Uh, Stephen Meyer's books have been New York Times bestsellers. I suspect this one's going to be that one as well. And so if you find yourself saying, well, um, I'd like to know a little bit more, you might want to get a copy of the book. Or if you have one of these really hardened skeptic friends that, you know, says, I just can't believe in God, give this to him or her and say, read through at least the first few chapters and tell me what you think, because you're actually encountering a pretty good mind using biblical um, inferences, but probably all the way through, I don't even think he has a Bible verse till the end. Uh, this is just really to begin to challenge the mind of individuals. Obviously, he comes from a Christian point of view, but he shows how using just logic and inferences you would come to that conclusion. And again, let me just invite any of you that would like to come on September 23rd to the Hope Center. Dr. Ray Bolin will probably do an even better job than I've done today because I've used things like balls and master locks and uh, various other things to illustrate the point. But um, we are convinced that there are very good reasons for us as Christians to believe in the existence of God or ultimately to believe, as I drop all of that, uh, to believe that in the beginning God created. Parker?